2: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're gonna to be taking a look at one of the worst concert tragedies we've had in many years. November 5th in Houston, Texas at the Astro World Festival. While Travis Scott performed on stage, there was a terrible crowd crush and as of the time we recorded this, there were 10 deaths including a nine-year-old boy as well as over 25 people seriously injured. It's just awful and we send thoughts out to all the victims and all the victims' families. The Rolling Stone has been covering this from every possible angle, and we're going to dig into the story today. First of all, let's hear an account from DeMarcus Bullock, who's 28 years old. He attended the festival. He survived the crowd crush. He was right up in front. My colleague Ethan Millman traveled to Houston, did some reporting outside the venue, where there were a bunch of tributes and memorials set up, but also lost and found. DeMarcus was there because in the crush, he lost his phone. And as he tells Ethan, he thinks if he had gone on the ground to pick it up, he might not have survived.
1: Drowning is quicksand. Like literally, that's quick quicksand. Being in the bottom of the ocean
0: and seeing the top, but you can't swim. I mean, I made it out. I hyperventilated. You know what I'm saying? Where you? What was going through your head? I mean,
1: there's no elbow room. Like we have space between us. There was no space. You know what I'm saying? Like it was. If that's what hell is like. I've never want to go to hell. Man. Everybody was pulling, so you couldn't move, I, I don't even know how to like explain this, you know? I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. This is, every, everything that was going on was in the front. Man.
0: So you were? Did you see like the people starting to go under and stuff? Or like, yeah. So like, it's like I, for instance, I dropped my phone. You know, you I know if I would have picked my phone up, I would have been trampled, bro. All the trampled bro. You know, like, so you saw people like, were you just trying to get out? Like, what, tell me what this is what you were seeing after it was all high going down. I was trying to get out, bro. I was trying to get out. I made, I made
1: it I was. I literally had to punch and pull people just to move out of the crowd. Bro.
2: When Travis Scott was a kid growing up in Houston, his favorite place on Earth was the local Six Flags Amusement Park, which was known as Astroworld. It shut down when he was 13, but he named his 2018 album after it, still a great album, and created the Astroworld Festival, an energy park in Houston, which happens to be the former site of the amusement park. The idea was probably to recreate some version of this childhood dream and some of that magic. Now Asterold is going to stand alongside Altamont and Woodstock 99 as a shorthand for concert disasters, even though it was a lot more deadly. A more accurate comparison would probably be the 11 people who were trampled before a concert by The Who in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1979, or the nine attendees who were killed at the Roskilde Festival in 2000 while Pearl Jam played. As of the moment we recorded this, well over 40 lawsuits have been filed against Scott, Live Nation, which was the show promoter, and other targets. When we talked to lawyers who sued over previous concert tragedies, they told us that there's likely going to be settlements in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And Houston police were also conducting a criminal investigation. Let's bring on Ethan Millman, who again flew to Houston to report on this story. What sense of the human impact of this awful thing have you gotten just from being there that we can't grasp because we're not there?
0: I didn't get the full idea of tragedy until being there and just realizing how young everyone was. You know, I'm young, but younger than me, like genuinely children. People were telling me just, I don't know why it hit me when someone had told me they were at that going to buy a beer and the alcohol lines were short. And he realized, oh, it's because these are all kids who were at this thing. This was not your typical Coachella thing where there's, you know, a good amount of people, everyone drinking. This was a child event. And being on the ground, you see that you see that this was uniquely a lot of young-looking people. It was hard for me to find many people, save for maybe some parents who were there with their kids when I was at the memorial. It was a lot of younger people who were reeling and who were still there. And even at the vigil, you know, you see a bunch of children, you know, high school kids, all having to face the reality of mortality way sooner than they ever should have, in the form of losing a friend at something that was supposed to just be a good time. And Those are things that I think you can gather a little bit of, seeing it on the news and reading the stories, but obviously seeing that in person and and seeing the people just adds an extra layer to it.
2: Immediately after the show, there were reports in TMZ quoting sources close to Astroworld, claiming that the crowd crush had started when a crazy person was injecting people with some kind of drug and that caused a stampede not alone in being highly dubious of that narrative. And then you were at this press conference and then I should add, then the police said, Oh, well, we don't know about that, but there was this one security guard who we think was felt a pinprick in his neck and then he was revived by Narcan. So I guess this one security guard maybe was injected with a drug. And that seemed to, for some people that provided tacit support to this bizarre Injection theory of the crowd crush, but then you were at this press conference where that completely went out the window
0: Right, and you know, and it, it, as you said it was dubious from the start, you know But I'll give the doubt that, you know, you saw that happening in England And so if someone says that they're like, okay, oh, it, it was it was do du- It was, you know, you hear it immediately and the first thought is we're gonna doubt that and you know I think it's worth knowing we didn't go with that true But yeah, we saw a lot of people who did I think in retrospect we should be happy that we did not but yeah, I mean, they, they pretty much acknowledged it. And so that rules it out. I mean, everything is starting to point more and more toward a lot of people, 50,000 people all rushing into it. We'll know more in the coming weeks, but it's becoming a clearer picture that this was about volume. Yeah, of people.
2: people might not have been aware of how horrifyingly common it actually is to have young people people of any age die from just the the force of the compression in a crowd crush. That is a phenomenon. And I think maybe the ignorance that people had of that phenomenon led to these bizarre explanations. But it, you've you've seen grieving people. You've taken the temperature of the community. Is the mood just sorrow? Is there an undercurrent of anger and wanting to know how this happened? How do you see it?
0: It's sorrow. I mean, you know, there's a press conference today for Barty Shahani, who who died, the 22 year old from Texas A and M, and that I think covers the full in, in the most extreme sense every emotion that everyone could possibly have about this: the overwhelming sadness and also anger, but really confusion and desire for closure. Here, they want to know what really happened. I mean, like in this case, the family was pointing much more so at the organizers themselves most directly. But you know, again, people want to know what happened and want to know why this happened in the first place. I think confusion was probably the emotion that I noticed the most, just because you would expect sadness, you would expect some of those things, but this is just a case where it's like, you can't really describe what happened yet.
2: To what extent has anyone brought up the fact that the police themselves made important decisions related to this festival beforehand, and now they're the same department investigating some of those decisions. There seems to be a a potential problem there.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the reports had already come out and uh, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo had already brought up, you know, in the recent days, she had put it out there into question of wanting to have an independent investigation free from the police. I mean, for those reasons that you said they were working there, are they able to do this without bias and without a conflict of interest? You know, other reports had brought up a potential relationship that the police chief has with Travis Scott. I mean, and he addressed both of those uh you know Chief Finner had addressed both of those at the press conference yesterday. He says that he's confident in his uh police department's you know ability to investigate their own. He says that he's only spoken with Travis Scott a couple of times. Um, I'm sure that this will be a sticking point in the coming days, weeks, and whatever I mean. No matter what, especially on what the results end up being, you know, if if it seems very friendly toward who may be responsible or not, I, I wouldn't be surprised there end up being even more calls for people outside the police department to be investigating the situation as well. And there's probably more. I mean, they opened it up lawyers, you know, who are current, all the people currently suing are able to go check the grounds themselves as well. So I think the more eyes, the better is what I'm hearing from people who are not police and want to make sure this is done properly. Totally.
2: So that was Ethan Millman from Houston. So what we're hearing from Travis Scott's camp is an insistence that he didn't know about the casualties while he played and that it wasn't his responsibility to stop the show it does in some minds raise questions as to why he wasn't informed since authorities declared a mass casualty event well before his set ended how could the police and fire department have not informed his handlers during the show if not Travis himself all that will play out in the coming weeks There's been a lot of attention paid to the fact that Travis encouraged quote unquote raging at his shows. He cultivated a famously wild and perhaps risky environment. It was in spirit informed by punk rock, by metal, there was crowd surfing, there was stage diving and more. In 2016, Chicago police arrested Travis after he urged fans to climb over barricades to go on stage at Lollapalooza. In 2017, Scott went further than usual He encouraged a fan to jump from a second floor balcony at Terminal 5 in New York City. During that same performance, another fan, his name was Kyle Green, he was 27, was pushed off the third floor balcony, and he ended up paralyzed. Now, as I mentioned, one of the most famous concert tragedies of all time happened in Cincinnati, Ohio on December 3rd, 1979, when 11 people died in a crowd crush outside the doors of the Riverfront Coliseum at a concert by The Who. And that, by the way, is one of the many reasons why you should totally reject anyone trying to argue, and I've unfortunately heard this argument out there, that the Astroworld tragedy is any way connected to hip-hop specifically or its fans. If anyone tries to say, oh, this could only happen at a rap show, it's ridiculous. Most of these disasters have been at rock shows. But there was a guy named Paul Wertheimer, who was Cincinnati's public information officer when the deaths at the Who show happened. He ended up on a task force on crowd control and the experience changed his life. Ever since then, he's become a leading world expert on, and honestly a crusader for, concert safety. Sadly, there's been enough of these tragedies over the years that I've had occasion to talk to Paul many times. On Saturday, the day after Astroworld, the first thing I did was call Paul. Here's what he had to say.
3: You know, how could this happen? Act of God. Uh, We all know how it happens. I mean, please, because it keeps happening over and over again. You know, uh, overcrowding and crowd crushing is the original sin of event organizers and planners of live events. You know, this stuff is so old. So I just can't take it. I mean, never could take it. In my opinion, everybody who signed off on that event is in trouble. If everybody groups up, in front is allowed to group up in front of the stage. Now you've got crowd, extreme crowd density and an environment for crowd crush, crowd surge and crowd collapse. So how can an, a uh, proper concert at the proper capacity overcrowd by allowing people to uh, congregate in unsafe densities to get too close
2: to each other and cause overcrowding?
3: Yeah like in front of the stage you've been to many clubs and concerts yeah. where half of the floor is empty the, uh, because ha- the the total crowd is in front of the stage right they've all moved to the front because everybody wants to be in front of the stage like the fire chief doesn't know why You know, why people would, how why they would do that. I mean, these are already legal defenses. When you hear panic and things like this, they're not sure and they have to study and they don't know why people die. They're already legal maneuvering as a defense. Yeah, I mean. Trying to confuse the public, trying to cover their tracks.
2: Right. Explain why panic is just the wrong way of explaining what happened here.
3: Well, panic is when you have a choice to make a right decision and a wrong decision, and you make the wrong decision under emotional stress. If you turn to the right, you can walk right out the door and you're safe. But you decide for some reason, because you're emotionally unstable or or you don't see things right, you go left. You know, you put yourself in danger that you don't have to be in. That's panic, but self-preservation, that's trying to save your life. And you know to confuse the two is, is uh, very disheartening when you hear a public safety official say that. So panic is making uh, the wrong choice when you easily could that puts you in greater danger than if you had taken the, the other choice. That's it's a, I think pretty s- a simple way of doing it. So these people aren't when you're trying to save your life, you're not panicking. You're trying to stay alive. That's not panic. And I don't care if you punch me in the face to do it. You're trying to stay alive,
2: right? Right, right self
3: course. You're trying to breathe. You're trying to save your girlfriend. You're trying to save people around you, you know? That's not panic at all. It's the same thing in 1979 at the Who concert where they tried to blame the fans, you know? and maybe you could forgive them then because we didn't there was so much we didn't know about crowds and hadn't i mean at least the industry knew but we didn't you know the public didn't know and so they tried to blame the victims they still try to blame the industry and those people associated with this event which includes the safety people i hate to say it they're trying to blame the crowd too or just act confused that how could this have happened and scratched their head like, it hasn't happened since ni- over and over again since 1952. Like I said, Moondog Coronation Ball in Cleveland, you know. Sure. And if we didn't all learn it, at least by 1979 or if we didn't all learn it by 1999 at Woodstock, or Lala,
2: Lollap- or the Lollapalooza's or the Tibetan Freedom Festival, or Roskilde would be another uh, good example.
3: Ruskilda. I'm just talking yeah. in the U.S. That's yeah. right, Roskilde Festival. If we haven't learned this, you know, every time the industry, the concert industry, gets a wake-up call, they hit the snooze button yeah. every time, and they go, "Oh yeah," they get their PR people and their industry people out there saying, "Oh, we got to study this." oh, I'm not sure this ever happened again, or oh, we don't know what happened, or we've got to do better. You know, all that for the PR, and then they go about doing their business. It was obvious to me, and I bet it was obvious to you and everybody else, that the crowds were gonna be difficult because everybody has been so cooped up, and young people wanna get on with their lives and wanna have fun and, and wanna have some camaraderie, right? Sure so people are ready to party everybody knew that but the industry didn't prepare for it and i'm sure they had trouble getting staffing training is an issue trying to maximize profit to catch that profit that was lost yes so they're totally unprepared you need more staff all of that costs money and so they do so the industry did it when the pressure was on then they stop doing it. Now you know, so there are simple ways. It's nothing new. We're not waiting for some new research, some new plans, some new ideas. Sure. It's as old as rock and roll I, I, and the good promoters.
2: Is it possible that it should start with looking at just the simple number of tickets sold? I mean, you feel free to disagree, sure. yeah.
3: I mean, everything is really based on the, yeah. that. You're talking about just capacity. How many people should be in a space? How many people can you put in this space safely right but see this is this is the problem when i started out there was this mantra that you heard a lot one death is one too many at a rock concert well guess what eight deaths aren't too many today 11 deaths aren't too many 57 deaths aren't too many 100 deaths aren't too many everybody has signed off on this craziness and it'll go on till these, like I've always said, till the people who run these events and man, plan them and manage them are held criminally accountable for what happens there. You do that, and you see concerts get safer overnight. That's what happened with Black Friday. OSHA sued Walmart stores on a major case. I think you might remember 2008 after... a uh temporary security person was crushed to death Sued them on a two thousand seven thousand dollar uh duty clause a fine where walmart paid spent well over two million dollars to try to defeat it once walmart lost there was no more craziness after that never occurred again once they could be legally held accountable it all ended overnight all the abuse of Black Friday crowds ended. The same thing would happen here if it weren't, for, I mean, it's just so difficult, but it, there's always somebody or people who can rise up and do it. I didn't do it, but there are others that can that start criminally charging these promoters and agencies that sign off on these reckless events and do that and ch- safety will change overnight that's and until then people you know will just go on so you can say what's going to happen here too brian you know i spent 30 years in litigation concert safety litigation some of the biggest uh, events cases in the country this all becomes a dance now if nobody's criminally charged families of the deceased will sue those injured will sue four years from now They'll settle with everybody. They'll do the dance. They'll do the legal dance. And it'll, it'll, in between and after, it will be business as usual. It's, it's, um, sounds cynical, but in fact, it's true. I can't think of anybody that got fired in any case I ever had where one or more people died. It's just the way, it's just the way it is. I, I mean, I'm not there on the stage. I know they can see the audience i know they feed off the audience you know yeah i know they rev up they uh, provoke the audience sure you know
2: sometimes yeah
3: and some and some of them do it till you know it spins you know uh, i always say wind up a crowd and it'll spin out of control yeah And some artists and uh, scott is good at that in the industry the artist already scott he's so concerned and heartbroken i know he didn't want anyone to die at his show i mean it's obvious but he kept creating environments in which people could die
2: yeah that,
3: and, that... you know and so it was russian roulette and guess what somebody and people have now died but he's insulated Sure, he's protected he'll spin it at, you know those the industry will spin it in his favor
2: That was Paul Wertheimer, a longstanding world expert in concert security. My colleague, Jeffy Haase, wrote a really great piece with the headline, The Travis Scott Brand Wasn't Built for This. Wanted to bring Jeff on to talk about Travis's place in the culture, the potential ramifications of this tragedy, and more. Here's that conversation between Jeff and myself. Jeff, maybe you can take a step back and... Explain a little bit about Travis Scott and also the Travis Scott brand, because it is a little bit hard to trace where the sort of human being ends and the brand begins or vice versa and sort of how he got to where he was and what he stood for as far as raging, as far as everything in the culture.
1: I feel like it's hard to even try to put Travis Scott into words one thing about this whole incident, for me at least, was thinking about Travis Scott and how he even became famous. Because I think that's something that's kind of fascinating about his rise, if you want to call it that, to me. Is like It sort of feels like it just always was, or it sort of just happened. But you know, you think about the first couple Travis Scott releases, there was a lot of buzz because he was adjacent to Kanye in the sort of Jesus moment that he was having. And it always sort of just felt like this fame thing like there's something there's something about him that was always about some big wave behind him someone very big behind him someone with a lot of clout behind him and that being why he was interesting or what made him interesting and then musically i feel like he was very good at doing just not just enough because that makes it sound so harsh but i think like he's very good at you know the formula and what he knows that he can deliver which is a sort of fun party like at this mode, at this level, at this style, and that's like what we're doing. And I think it's hard to see him now because now it's like, it it feels like the whole thing kind of came crashing down in a weird way. Travis Scott arrived just before the SoundCloud and the real like youth-driven social media, internet rap blew up. And he sort of got to be the, the corporate representative of youth culture, even though it never really occurred in the way for him that it did for a lot of the people who are, you know, young and kind of making waves in hip hop and different other genres of music as well.
2: Astroworld, the album, now has a very unfortunate name as an album. Oh, I mean, you know, yeah.
1: for for the city of Houston, it's really interesting to me because as a, you know, Houston native, Astroworld is a, is a deeply nostalgic place in the city, you know, and it was tragic enough when it closed. <laughs> and and now it kind of has a, yeah, that, that name association is actually really devastating in a, in a huge way uh, that I think, can only really be understood by the people on the ground there.
2: That's a great point. But I liked that album a lot when it came out and I still like it a lot. And I'm not sure how much, you know, how much you can credit Travis himself or whoever for it. But for me, at least that album holds up.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that Travis Scott's music to me has always been very hard to make any, like, I don't really think about it in that way, you know, where it's like, They're all good songs. Am I like queuing them up every day, like thinking about, oh, I'm gonna wake up and like, that's gonna be like on while I'm working or something. That's not really my relationship to his music. And I don't know that he like cultivates that kind of a relationship with his fans.
2: In general, you know, what I was struck by when I first saw him live, which was I think opening for Kendrick, is that it was, I found it really entertaining. It's also, as another writer pointed out, he wasn't really rapping per se. He was, he had basically his music playing complete with his vocal track and he would kind of add stuff on. I, I think it was Tom Brahan at Sterigum pointed out that he was kind of, his performance style was that he was like his own hype man.
1: Right and, right.
2: and that honestly did set the template for a lot of other rap performances I've seen since. So in a way for better or the worse, he was sort of ahead of the curve on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what makes this whole situation kind of, You know, the whole thing has felt kind of like existentially devastating because it does seem like Travis Scott represented the norm of hip hop, of pop culture, of youth driven anything. So this whole situation sort of reveals a lot of the kind of cracks in that, where I think the flip side of him having a concert, you know, his relationship to live music being essentially being his own hype man is a much more detached relationship to the crowd than someone who's performing and I think mm. that's where a situation like this could unfold where, you know, you can't blame him. And I, and I certainly hope in people reading my piece, it doesn't seem as I'm just purely blaming him because the job that he has kind of constructed for himself to do on stage and in his music and in everything doesn't require anything further than being your own hype man, be, than playing the songs, jumping around, doing the right, you know, moves. And that's, that's it. And I think that's very different than what we've had in generations prior.
2: You wrote a piece a long time ago about this, just the the entrance of sort of stage diving and moshing into rap and Travis as being a a big force for that and this sort of now longstanding wildness at at his shows.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's, I'm sure there's a PhD thesis to be written about all of the different layers of sociopolitical and cultural and racial shifts that, are implied in a more punk ethos being introduced to hip-hop music. But I think what's really interesting is, you know, you think about Odd Future, that was around 2010, we're looking at a decade plus since the rise of Odd Future. And a lot of what they were doing, a lot of what made them so popular was that they weren't afraid to branch out of what hip-hop was. They weren't afraid to be weird and different in the sort of like cultural suit that everyone lives in kind of way. You know, hip-hop for a long time was very rigid in this like here's how you act, here's how you dress, here's how you talk, here's how you relate to the world and the press. And Odd Future kind of broke that open and introduced a lot of different styles, and a lot of different energies. And that came at a time when I think, you know, I think something I'm thinking about now is a lot of hip hop artists at that time were also pushing boundaries on introducing new genres and introducing new sounds and samples, et cetera. So I think, you know, this whole moshing energy in hip hop is a result of a lot of different changes that happened in the past decade of just the way genres have broken down. The thing about it for, for someone like Travis and like what you see on the kind of extreme end of it, cause you know, even a few weeks prior to his show, there was a Playboy Cardi concert that a riot basically broke out at. You can almost contrast like Odd Future's crazy, the wildest antics that occurred at their shows with what happened at Astroworld. And you can kind of look at two different ways of engaging with fans where one is even though you're huge and super popular, you're still kind of directly getting people to come to this location or this venue or whatever. And it's not happening at the scale of, I'm going to also have Drake come out. I'm also going to have every superstar you've ever heard of come out. I'm also going to have two days of it. It's also going to just be gigantic and there's going to be 50,000 people there. You know, it's like, these things used to happen on a much different scale and There's a limitation to what you can do with this like moshing and punk energy. Travis was the only one on stage at the time. So there's a lot about the way that it was structured that feels different from older music festivals, even though it's all extremely dangerous though and probably should be reformed in some large scale way.
2: You had an interesting point that he was sort of this avatar of cool, almost this this placeholder for cool. They could have corporate brands placed on it, which is a, a dark way of looking at it, but there may be some accuracy to that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. The, to me, that always feels like super obvious and it's like, it doesn't make him like bad. It's like, I'm in many a cab in a club where Travis Scott plays and I have a great time, but I just know what I'm getting into. But I, I think, you know, it, it plays into kind of the moshing and the, the rage mentality and the introduction of punk and underground ideas. You know, if you look at a lot of Travis Scott's kind of uh, cultural his cultural output, if you will, for the past, you know, five or so years, he's gotten really into sneakers. He's gotten really into streetwear. He's really good at, you know, honing in on what the underground cool people are interested in and being a part of it. That's kind of the whole game that, and and that's like the game of hip hop currently, right? It's like you think of like Virgil Abloh's influence. You think about this fashion hip hop crossover where it's all about these sort of reference points of I'm in the cool Japanese label that you haven't heard of. And we're iced out in Tokyo. You know, it's like, there's this, you're part of some creative underground. And I think Travis's kind of whole thing has been cultivating that in as profitable a way as possible. And I don't know that that's like a horrible thing. It's like, it's good business.
2: (laughs) I think it's complicated because I think to quote unquote, blame him for this, Especially now, with not all the facts in, is obviously misguided. It's probably going to be turned out to be overdetermined in the sense there's going to be a lot of blame to go around. Uh, and the guy who's on stage is only one of many people involved in the show, even though it was his show. Totally. Uh, but I guess the one thing you could probably say is that all the, is he didn't seem to really have a grasp of the potential dangers. In, for example, encouraging, I mean, as he did lot of many years ago, encouraging crowds to, like, overcome the insecurity to go on stage or to, you know, apparently urging someone on a second floor balcony to jump off. Don't worry, they'll catch you. It's like he, I don't think it's malevolent. I think he just maybe, there's maybe, there seemed to be, like, maybe a weird disconnect there. And I also kind of blame maybe people on his team for not explaining to him the real risks you know I I don't know I don't know how you see that
1: I mean to me it's like a lot of these things are ultimately like shenanigans for lack of a better word where it's like you know Travis Scott is an entertainer he's a performer just like anyone else and I think it's perfectly reasonable and it's you know it's in a lot of ways part of the art to engage with risk and danger or whatever especially if that's kind of what you're doing I'm not one of these people who thinks like he somehow should have had like laser vision and like Done everything right. I think it's more about the nature of his performance, doesn't even like create the room for considering what's going on in the crowd that way. Even in the footage from Astro World, you know, the ambulance is in the crowd and he's kind of just like, what the hell was that? I don't think it's malevolence and to the degree of him just having like no regard for human life or being some like crazy person. But I do think there's an element of detachment from the real world in this way where it's like, there's just, it's it's too much of a bubble of his existence.
2: There are things that you look at differently now. My friend Jonah Weiner, who wrote the last cover story we did on Travis Scott, it opens up with what at the time was sort of presented as an amusing anecdote, which is Travis basically driving, I, I think it's like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini at like over a hundred miles per hour on a rainy road. And then like just barely avoiding an accident. At the time it's like, oh, what a fucking badass. But actually you're like, Wait a second. <laughs> you know, now, now you're like, wait a second. You know, I, I do right, see that right. totally differently now. So, and it is, and sometimes you wonder, well, how did I read it any other way? I'm also very sensitive to, you know, don't punish this guy beyond what, for example, like what a, a white rock star in the same situation would get punished. At a level of condemnation, a level of punishment, everyone should watch for that. I think that's very legitimate. You know, Mick Jagger didn't get, quote unquote, canceled after Altamond. You know, but it's just so hard to decide when you're doing apples and apples and when you're doing apples and oranges yeah, and there's no yeah. comparison. Whatsoever. It's so hard, I think.
1: Well, I also, I mean, I, I, you know, I, cancellations happen differently because I think Keith Richards didn't get canceled, but the influence of the band definitely shifted over time. I'm sure there is enough, you know, insurance and liability clauses and everything that went down that Travis Scott is not going to be ruined for the rest of his life after this. Will the culture shift away from what he has to offer in part because of what this sort of laid bare and exposed, that might be true. I think ultimately everyone feels like, oh, that really sucks. And that's hard for him to have to go through. It's definitely going to make it weird to hear his music because he's not really someone you go to for music about like real stuff. <laughs> so that it just, it creates a, it creates a, it's an interesting moment. You know, Maybe he, he emerges from this like deeply soulful or something.
2: Mm. yeah hard to see i mean the, the other thing is after these kind of things there often are cultural or musical shifts that then at least in retrospect are sort of pinpointed to the tragedy
1: so well, everything uh, only makes sense in hindsight
2: right so i do wonder what whatever change in music happens in the next couple of years i think there's a fair chance that falsely or not people will say well that strain of music kind of died with the tragedy at Astroworld, right? I mean, that- that I could
1: totally see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but then it's funny too, because I think, you know, in my view, it's like hip hop has been moving away from that quietly and slowly as every genre and culture does. But I could imagine whatever comes next being attributed to Astroworld. And people might be annoyed about it, but it actually kind of makes sense to me.
2: It is worth pointing out, you know, just on a broad level, the music is just the simplest thing in the world. And we kind of were hinting at it. The music that young kids go out and rage to <laughs> has shifted, you know, in masses. It it used to be guitar-based music. At the moment, it, it most certainly is not. This is, actually, I was talking to a concert security guy who's a little older, and he was like, you know, it's funny, this happened, there's been a bunch of, because he was talking about the fact that. There obviously is a lot of pent-up energy post-COVID. And you're saying, but you know, it's funny. There's been all these big metal fests and stuff. And I said, man, those crowds are much older. This is where the kids are. Honestly, the weirdest thing to me is uh, I actually like Travis's music, but none of it reads as aggressive to me.
1: You know, if you wanted to criticize the music of it, I think the the raging element also kind of masks something that might be missing from his music, but that's another conversation.
2: It would be really unfortunate if rap concerts in particular, rap festivals in particular, take all the heat from this. Cause that unfortunately, historically, that seems to be how it always goes down.
1: I mean, that's a hundred percent going to be the case, which is gonna suck.
2: I spoke to someone who said that specifically it's gonna be so hard just to get insurance for festivals in general, but he said specifically rap festivals, which is really unfortunate.
1: I mean, I think a bigger conversation that this opens up, and I think this is something people will probably start thinking about towards the spring as Coachella kind of gets ramping up. We certainly have a lot of data about music festivals having huge issues over the, over the course of all of the history of music festivals. I mean, it's not even that long ago that other kind of like, not as devastating or as you know, deadly, but other catastrophes of music festivals have occurred. And obviously, Fire Festival was a cultural phenomenon, so I, I can imagine this being kind of like the first in a huge shift in the way music festivals are organized in general. And I think as a as a fan, and most fans would probably agree, music festivals have been kind of difficult over the past five or so years, I think.
2: It feels like the crowds are bigger. Too big. Yeah. It feel, I'm not accusing any promoters of anything, but <laughs> even just looking at some of the big festivals the first post-COVID big festivals and the aerial views and even actually talking to fans, it just seemed like the crowds are too big and too packed.
1: Something has changed in the past few years where it is now about having the biggest concert, the biggest festival, the most names on the lineup. And that shift I think has resulted in a much different experience and a much less enjoyable experience.
2: Well, there's been a real corporatization of all these festivals.
1: I think it's one company does most of that.
2: Yes, exactly. One specific, Live Nation yeah. specifically, and who snatched up a bunch of smaller promoters. Yep, and yep. it's really, really big business now, you know? And
1: it translates to the music, I think. I think that to me is, you know, if you look at the way in which the festival industry has kind of corroded fandom, you know, I think there's a there is a parallel in the way that Travis Scott and his ilk's sort of formulaic, I think it's empty as a critic.
2: We should just take a step back. In the U.S., festival culture is really only about 20 years old. People forget there were, there was a huge overseas tradition of festivals, but it really was when Coachella took off in the wake of Woodstock '99, Coachella, and then Bonnaroo, and from there it, it's grown up. But you're right when you talk about five to seven years, that's like half the lifespan of the U.S. festival culture. So absolutely <laughs> right,
1: yeah. Right, but I mean, they've gotten younger only insofar as they've gotten so much bigger. So you know, they definitely appeal to young people. Mom, Dad, I need eighty dollars to go to the festival.
2: When you look at Woodstock '99, which is so long ago that now there's you know multiple documentaries coming out about it. But think about Woodstock 99, everything you hear, expensive water, poorly trained security guards, even I, back in the day, I reported on security guards being given the answers to the licensing test, which exactly happened again. Wow. Uh, no one ever learns any lessons. It is. seems
1: like Woodstock 99 was the first time that someone was like, huh, I wonder if we can make a bunch of money doing this. And the answer is no, <laughs> but it seems that people are committed to continue trying.
2: Well, uh, I guess if you have an enormous public corporation that does these again and again on an enormous scale, I guess that's how you make money. And yeah. that, that they, they figured that
1: out. You know, human carnage as a result.
2: And that is our episode for today. Again, I wanted to send thoughts out to all the victims and the victims' families. And Rolling Stone is going to keep covering this story. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. It's always appreciated. And as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.